This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, brought to you by the AM Campaign. Justin, uh, uh, another week. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. As you know, we ended last week pretty well. We were in Chicago uh, for the Faith and Politics Rally. And so I want to give a shout out to my man, uh, Dr. Charlie Dates, the Gardner C. Taylor of our generation and Progressive Baptist Church for having us. We had a wonderful rally. Got to see friends like you, uh, Chris Butler, uh, Brian Dye. Uh, got to meet some new sisters and got to see uh, Dr. Jacqueline Rivers and so on. Man, it was an excellent time. So that, that got me off to a good uh, – well, that ended the week for me really well last week. Since then, I've been struggling a little bit. I got to admit, I, man, I have like a, a sinus infection and all kind of stuff. My whole family has been sick, man, and I'm in the midst of – we're about to start my seminary exam. So uh, y'all, y'all out there, pray for me so I can get through this. Oh, man. Yeah, it's that time of the year. I, I, I've been feeling uh, like I'm about to come down on something, too. But you're right. Uh, the time at Progressive last week lifted my spirits. It was just it was just wonderful to be with so many friends. We were able to talk about the 2020 statement. There's going to be more coming out on that soon. But just want to reiterate again this week to folks uh, how grateful we are for your support of the statement. If you haven't signed yet, you could go to andcampaign.org slash 2020 and add your voice. We have folks from all over the country who have signed this statement in uh, leadership in institutions, folks who are activists on the ground. I've been in politics for a, a while, and as have you, Justin. And you know, as we've been looking at these names come in and seeing sort of the geographic spread, the diversity of the signers, it's uh, it's the beginning, I think, of something something pretty beautiful. Absolutely. There's some unprecedented things going on here. I think this is almost an unprecedented type of coalition that's growing. I think by the time you get to early next year, it's going to be people will be surprised how much of that list has grown. And so I'm just excited about it to have a bunch of folks who are trying to be faithful, who may not agree on everything, but have come together to say, here are some principles that we can agree on and that we want the candidates to respond to. And I'm excited. Well, uh, we have uh, some interesting topics to discuss uh, this this week. So let's jump in. And where we wanted to start, we wanted to talk about comments made by former President Barack Obama uh, at a, a, a fundraising event where he, uh, the main message that he had, Justin, for, and this is sort of Democratic Party, liberal elite donors, uh, was to was to relax a, a, a little bit uh, from this, and actually, that's exactly the headline of the New York Mag 
uh, coverage. Obama tells his party's elites to relax, which is basically what Barack Obama's done for his entire career. It's what he had to do during the primary when uh, when folks would get all riled up about every up and down in the polls. Uh, He did it during his reelection. He's someone who uh, likes things to be calm and to sort of steady the ship. And so that's what he was doing here at a time when I think there's some restlessness in the party that the primary process has been healthy and that a nominees going to emerge that will that will beat Donald Trump. So he, he was telling folks to calm down. He said, we have a field of a very accomplished, very serious and passionate and smart people who have a history of public service. And whoever emerges from the process, I, I'm, I'll work my tail off to make sure they are the next president. So that was the main message of, of, of what he said. But that wasn't what picked up all the all the hubbub on social media, it was this. And again, this wasn't the center of his remarks, but but he, he said this. He said, this is still a country that is less revolutionary than it is interested in improvement. He said, the average American doesn't think we have to completely tear down the system and remake it. He continued, voters, including Democrats, are not driven by the same views that are reflected on certain left-leaning Twitter feeds or the activist wing of our party. And that's not a criticism to the activist wing. Their job is to poke and prod and text and inspire and motivate. But the candidate's job, whoever that ends up being, is to get elected. So I guess I'll I'll toss it off to you. Is this... um, uh, is is Barack Obama, uh, you know, uh, breaking new ground here with these comments? Uh, has he has he jumped the shark here, or, um, or 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 do you think there might be some merit to what he's saying? Oh, I think there's a lot of merit to what he's saying. I don't think it's I don't think it's new ground. I think he's trying to be helpful. Uh, I think I think there's a lot of truth in in in, in those words, and uh, it's it's very clear that people don't want to hear it. But let me say this: and I'm, I'm gonna go into <laughs> yeah. a little bit of one of one of my monologues. Yeah, um, we're ready. You know, yeah, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> look, look, I, I don't completely disagree with everything the progressive left is saying. Right, I do believe that consumer capitalism has failed most Americans. I believe that the establishment left and the establishment and the establishment rights buddy buddy relationship with Wall Street has also failed most Americans. Um, and so we can agree on that. Uh, I think the Obama administration could have probably done more in that regard. Uh, the subprime loan crisis, uh, the subsequent bank bailout, all that stuff was pre- preventable. And, and I've said before, I think that's one of the greatest injustices we've seen in several decades. Um now, I don't think socialism is the answer, but I do want to start off by saying I'm not saying that what the progressive left is saying is completely without merit. Right. But I will say this. Uh, the progressive left has created almost an alternative utopian universe, and, and it's kind of built on the social science theories of the far left academics, the narratives of far left artists, uh, the hopes and dreams of far left activists many of whom are only active on social media, Twitter fingers. Um, In this universe, everything is free, right? So math doesn't exist. Everything's free. Math doesn't exist. Biology doesn't exist. Physiology doesn't exist. 
and the realities of governing don't exist. And I think this is what Obama was getting getting to. You you know, in this in this reality or in this universe, you get to just implement your perfect policies unopposed without any fear of unintended consequences or anything like that. Now, this universe is protected by like a force field of rhetorical devices, though. And what this force field does is it automatically delegitimizes everyone who disagrees with uh, the progressive left, no matter what the merits of the argument might be no matter what the history and the credibility of the person making the counterpoint, uh, no matter what their credibility might be, it's automatically uh, illegitimate. If you, you know, if you make them try to explain their policies, then you're using Republican talking points. Even if you're, even if you're critiquing those policies based on Democrat principles, even if you hold Democrat office at the time that you say it, or if you have Democrat tatted on your head, you're making Republican talking points if you challenge their policy. If you attack their arguments, this force field basically says that you're just attacking their gender or their race, whichever is more convenient. Uh, it's never about the half cocked ideas or the sentiments. It's always about identity, ab- about the identity of the person, uh, because ideas, sentiments and the person are one anyway. Right. Under this reality, unlike the universe that we're in, Michael, which has planets that rotate around the sun, following a pretty consistent course. The progressive utopia only goes left. It only goes left in a linear motion. In fact, all the planets inside of this universe sprint to the left at the speed of light. And this is the tough part. If you're only as progressive as the movement was in 2016, then you fall outside of the universe and you are rendered irrelevant and canceled. You see, Michael, this is what happened to President Obama, because apparently he's only 2015 progressive uh, because. And so if he's 2015 progressive, then he's four years behind the movement. See, it's always moving at light speed. All the progressive narratives, all the progressive policies that he promoted mean nothing unless he bows to this kind of ever moving target. Uh This also happened to Obama, and you may recall this. This also happened to him when he emphasized that fathers are important in a child's life. We very quickly saw the progressive left had moved past that kind of idea. That's like a pre-2000 progressivism. Uh, And he, you know, he had to hear about it, right? Oh, yeah. So I don't want to speak for you, Michael, but I'm going to make some estimates. I I would estimate that someone like you, you're probably a 2010-2012 progressive, which means you do... You, I want to put you on notice. You have some catching up to do, my friend. <laughs> now, that is better than me because I am like a 20, 2008 progressive, which means I'm kind of prehistoric. There may or may not be hope for me. <laughs> but the one, the one thing I do find hope in is that there seems to be a, a grace period for black and brown Christians only because they need our votes. So I may be OK as long as I don't speak up too much. Otherwise, I'll be deplatformed. But I think I think there may be hope for me based on that exception or grace period, whatever you want to call it. Um, But the truth of the matter is, because of this ever moving shift towards the left that we see going on with progressivism, it's almost impossible for for people of faith who believe in absolute truth to keep up with this movement. And that's one of the you know, out of all the things we say, a lot of the there's kind of like an ongoing theme of how do you how do you keep up with something that's always moving to the left? That seems to be the only moral is that always go left, further and further left. Each year we're going left. It's not that much different than, you know, 
I think it's similar to how it's almost impossible for people of faith to continue to support Trump in a way, uh, because you have to be continuing to go deeper, deeper down in a hole. So uh, the progressives go to the left. If you're supporting Trump, you're going down and digging further and further in that hole. And, and I'll end with this, Michael, because I know I've been going for a second. I want to suggest a policy of full disclosure when it comes to pro- progressivism. It is no longer enough to say that you're politically progressive. I want, I think people should have to disclose exactly how progressive they are, right? So if you say that you're progressive progressive, that means that you're a very enlightened being and that you're progressive to the you're progressive up to the point of where we are today which is extremely progressive and you know you get you get rewarded for that um if you're not that progressive then you have to say hey i'm i'm 2008 progressive for you like i said i guess you're 2010 2012 progressive or whatever so we have full disclosure at where people are because as fast as this is moving to say that you're progressive clearly isn't enough because if uh, president obama isn't progressive enough for the progressives even with all the policies and things that he's done then who can be safe and who can really know if they're progressive enough for the moment I, I, I would uh, present this uh, disclosure policy to help everybody be more accurate in how progressive they actually yeah, are. We, at could, we could just like hold the Democratic primary over the course of a week as opposed to like two years. And uh, you, you really you really streamline things. I, I like that. Exactly. <laughs> it's uh, exactly. <laughs> I'll just just uh, so I think your comments were were you know, on point, Uh, just to sort of zoom back. I I mean, part of, uh, I think that the the distinction here is that Barack Obama has won national elections while uh, a lot of the folks he's talking to try every which way to lose national elections. And so, you know, like the, the pushback on this has been so predictable because what he said is just so so standard, so 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 obvious that the activists play a role, and that role is important. But candidates, their job is to get elected, and if you, they have to govern. They actually have to do things. They have to govern, man. <laughs> they have to actually and, uh, do things and, in and real so, world. Yeah, know, I, I thought it was uh, useful to to see that. You know, one difference that's happened is. This kind of statement isn't new for Barack Obama. Uh, he uh, he would say things like this as president all the time. But when he was president, when he was leading the party, activists would try to sort of ignore these kinds of statements uh, because they, because as president, he was sort of in such a position to, uh, to, to drive debate. Uh, now you see activists, like you said, trying to paint Barack Obama as somehow, uh, you know, from from the past and, and they're the future. Um, they're not going to be the future unless uh, unless some of the Democrats running uh, heed some of the advice Barack Obama uh, gave uh, at this fundraiser because they're 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 not going to have anyone that's remotely friendly in office uh, unless that happens. So, yeah, I mean, and and it's just this orthodoxy, right? So I I couldn't agree with you more. What he said is based off someone who's won. So all this stuff that who you know who are you? How could he say this? Well, he he's won, so there's some credibility there, right? 
Um, there, there's some credibility from an understanding of going through an entire campaign, a very tough campaign, coming from behind, actually winning, keeping an eye on what's going on and not really just responding to really what is Twitter politics, which is completely different than what's going on in the real world. And people need to see it over and over. I, I see people saying it's funny that Obama only criticizes, you know, other progressives and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what are we talking about? Like he has a, he has a lot of different uh, conversations and, and critiques. And let's be let's be honest, this is primary season. And so you're going to get some internal criticism. That's just kind of what happens. But what people want to do, again, is this force field that keeps you from ever being critiqued. And sadly, that is just not realistic. Everybody has to get critiqued. I don't care who you are, what you're saying. You have to stand up to scrutiny. Or, and that's just the way that our democracy works, because we don't want ideas that have not been tested, that cannot be defended to be uh, put forward and to and to move forward in our society. That's not good for anybody. So you have to be tested as part of it all. And the more rhetorical devices you come up with to avoid that, I think you're only hurt, hurting yourself. I think Democrats would be very smart to listen to Obama, even if they don't agree with everything he's saying. I don't necessarily. But you got to give him some credit for who he is, where he's been and uh, and how much he cares about what's going on in the party. Yeah. I mean, well, we might have to save that that idea that I saw on Twitter, too, that, oh, you know, he's always criticizing the the left he he never has anything to say to the to the right uh we might have to save that for another another episode i will just say this uh look presidents can be really effective at shutting down dissent within their party if a white house wants to shut down activists they can do that just by by delegitimizing them by cutting off support to democratic politicians that that give room to them instead we saw the very same activists who who were just sort of getting their legs under them in 2014 2015 that's when they started their rise and Barack Obama brought some of them those who weren't just about talking but about doing like Brittany Packnett into the White House. He actually said, I, you have something to say. I want to hear it, which is different from how other presidents have, have acted. So I just say like the, the whole, the whole, uh, the whole case that exactly what you said, people just don't want to hear anything from anybody that suggests that exactly what they're doing may not be the best course of action. And that that's not, uh, not only is that sort of, uh, not right, but for whatever movement you're advocating for, if you close yourself off to critical input, you're you're going to starve your own movement. Your your own your own cause isn't going to be successful because you're so concerned about protecting your own sort of uh, purity and your own sort of uh, strategic impulses uh, that you're not able to learn anything. Uh, and and so you know, I think uh, uh, I, I think. These comments were interesting. What was more interesting was what they started up on on social over the weekend. Uh, All right. When we get back, we're going to talk about a new candidate in in the Democratic primary race. Uh, And uh, we're going to talk about an election that was held uh, over the weekend as well. This is the Church Politics Podcast. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. 
Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me home. To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. We're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And last week, uh, former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick announced that he would jump in to the Democratic primary, uh, uh, throwing his name uh, into the into the hat. He filed just the day before the filing deadline in uh, New Hampshire uh, came up. Now, Deval Patrick was someone who was very much in conversations a year ago as someone who might run. Uh, And a year ago, he announced that he would not jump into the race uh, for a number of reasons, including the fact that his his wife was sick. His wife was diagnosed with with cancer. He now says his wife is 100% healthy. He sees a space in this primary for his candidacy. Told reporters, in many ways, it is... uh, it has felt to me watching the race unfold that we are beginning to break into camps of nostalgia on the one hand and my way or the or no way uh, on the other. Sort of zero-sum politics, kind of what we were just talking about in the last segment. Uh, he said we have to be about we have to be about how we bring people in, how we bring people along, and how we yield to the possibility that somebody else or even some other party may have a good idea as good or better than our own. Now, uh, just full disclosure, I've been a fan of Deval Patrick for a while. I've viewed him as someone who has a vision for bringing the country together. Uh, I, I think he is uh, has a certain level of optimism and forward-thinking about him that uh, I, I thought would do very well in primary in this moment. He's jumping in late. He has no campaign infra- infrastructure, but folks should not underestimate what a talented politician he is. In fact, many of it was his campaign for governor in 2006, I believe, where some of the kind of ideas were tested out that ended up informing Barack Obama's campaign in 2008. David Axelrod, President Obama's advisor, advised Deval Patrick 2006 run. He's a very talented politician. It may just be too late for him uh, to make a difference. On the other hand, we've seen polls come out just over the last week where about two-thirds of primary voters, even in the early states, are not yet decided. Uh, and so even though they say they're content with the field, uh, 
they also say that they haven't they haven't settled on on who they're going to support. So I think that's one of the numbers that that Patrick saw and, and decided you know it was worth jumping in. The, the last thing I'll say, Justin, is one thing that Patrick avoids with this is he hasn't had to spend the last year running through all of these advocacy group events and having that sort of uh, be pulled in every which way by these advocacy groups, many of which, you know, don't even speak for the people that they claim to represent on, on everything that they're supporting. Uh, and so he gets into this primary, get he gets to see where everyone else has landed. Things are heating up so much that he's not going to have to do too many of these sort of cattle call events where you have uh, candidates uh, uh, being asked whether they'll legalize prostitution or whether uh, they'll do this or that. And I think that that's a benefit. It's, it's why he's able to say in his announcement, some other party may have a good idea as good or better than our own. That's a very difficult thing for many of these other candidates who have spent the last year only appealing to uh, advocacy groups and the left wing of the party. Very difficult for them to stay. Uh, so, so Justin, what, what do you think about Deval Patrick's entry into this race? What does it say, and, and do you think he has a chance? Yeah, I mean, I think what it says, number one, is that people see a void, uh, that they see a void. I think people believe that uh, Biden is just, they're questioning whether he's strong enough to make it to the end. So so let's be very clear. If Biden is strong and, and people believe Biden is very strong, then you don't really have a place for Deval Patrick. But Deval Patrick enters into this conversation because people don't think Biden is strong and the other so-called establishment candidates, they just don't think, you know, can beat uh, the folks who are coming from the progressive left or beat Trump. And so I think that's where this comes from. Uh, I have a lot of respect for Deval Patrick as well. Uh, I think he is, uh, as you mentioned, Michael, uh, a man of, of vision. I do see that vision and also ha- seems to have a core. Um, and I think we saw a lot of the other camp. Well, not a lot. We saw some of the other campaigns kind of be dis- de- uh, derailed because they were pulled back and forth by all these different groups, like you said, that don't really even represent that big of a constituency. But if you're running based on what people are saying on Twitter, we've seen some campaigns really uh, sputter because they got caught up in that and following every new policy that those folks put out. I don't think that's the Val Patrick style. Uh, and so he doesn't, uh, you know, coming in late, he doesn't have to deal with that. Uh, he's probably, you know, he's a, a, a few ticks to the left of where I would be on a lot of social issues. I don't agree with everything that he brought to Massachusetts in that regard. And so that's something that I think folks would really have to push him to back off on. But generally, I, I think he, he's a solid candidate. He's somebody who I wish would have come in from the beginning uh, and and totally understood why he didn't and, and the things that he had to take care of with his family. The question is this, how does he get on the debate stage? What does he do to make a splash, to make people see him before, you know, to make people choose him over your uh, Cory Bookers, over uh, Harris, over now someone like uh, Buttigieg? What do you do to make that splash? You know, in conversation, we had a conversation about this before, you know, before the event that we had. And and the, the feeling was he's a pretty uh, a smart guy. There has to be something that he's bringing. There, there has to be some people behind him who really are going to help him make a splash. Does he get a critical mass of 
African-American influencers to give to say, hey, this is the guy before he, before South Carolina happens. Right. And so it kind of pushes him above everybody else to say, no, this is our candidate. Uh, this this is somebody who we see being similar to Obama. I think he needs that kind of push. I mean, I'm talking about like, you know, your Oprah's Tyler Perry's Valerie Jarrett, all those folks coming out and say, this is the guy that we should push forward. Uh, not that we don't like Biden, but uh, he just doesn't have the power to get through because that's really what he has to do. He he has to eat into the African-American support and other support that Biden has wrapped up right now. And apparently they think he can, but they're going to have to do something, something to make a big splash because it's going to be very hard to get him on that debate stage. Uh, so, he, he, you know, he has to really uh, prove uh, and, and that he has some way of 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 being heard, right, of kind of rising above the fray. That's what I'm waiting to see. Uh, I would imagine being as savvy as he is with the type of people that he's had behind him, I would guess that he may have had a conversation with somebody like Axelrod. Uh, They know that you can't just step in this late and just act like everything's all good and that, you know, all things are equal. You're going to have to do something extraordinary. What that will be, I don't know. But I think the target of what that may be is going to be South Carolina. Yeah. You know, I'd also say, though, remember he was governor of uh, of. Massachusetts, uh, the neighboring state to New Hampshire. And so th- there there also might be a hope that he still has enough name recognition in New Hampshire that he'll be able to hit the polling, uh, the polling metrics in New Hampshire uh, and maybe maybe eat into Elizabeth Warren's numbers there. Um, so so I agree that the other thing I'd sort of throw into the ring here is uh, and we, we discussed this, you know, another name to look out for is Eric Holder. You know, uh, Eric Holder and Patrick worked together for a, a long time. Uh, the Obama ties there obviously are strong. And so, you know, d- does Patrick have someone like Holder who uh, would indicate at least, you know, if Holder endorsed, it would indicate at least a comfort in sort of Obama land with with Patrick running, if not an outright endorsement from the from the former pre- president himself. And so I, I'm looking to see, like you said, like if he if he has some endorsements that are sort of in uh, that he's waiting to roll out, uh, he, he has to have. I can't think someone as, as smart as him it, uh, doesn't have uh, something that's going to make a splash. Um, yeah, let, let me ask you this, though, Michael. Yeah. Based on our, our dis- progressive disclosure model that we put out, how progressive is he? Yeah, you know, I think we're going we're, we're gonna to see. I mean, so he hasn't been in office for five years. And so we'll, we'll see if he's one of those planetary uh, celestial objects that's always moving left or or if as he kind of indicated in his announcement he's he's someone who who has a core and who doesn't think that you govern uh, by constant provocation uh, and so you know we're gonna see how that comes out I, I think he's he's clearly not he's clearly to the right of a Warren and Sanders on economic issues. Uh, there is a certain Northeastern sensibility on uh, religious institutions, at least that I that I think he's a a carrier of. So he's definitely to the left on social issues, but there's a respect for religious institutions because of the historic strength of the Catholic Church in the Northeast that sometimes a lot of these Northeastern politicians uh, carry. And so it'll be interesting to see if he has 
anything to say about religious freedom. Um, but like the rest of the field, I mean, we don't have someone who's a centrist on social issues. Uh, but like you said, Justin, you know, that he is he's a candidate who's who needs a certain level of support in order to make the debate stage. And so, you know, for voters in New Hampshire and South Carolina and Iowa to sort of push him on some of these issues and for advocacy groups and others who are interested in, in finding a candidate that uh, maybe is a bit more to their liking than what's currently in the field. You know, this is this is an opportunity to make clear to him that there's a constituency waiting for a candidate that comes a little closer to meeting their needs. I did want to, we didn't discuss this because I, I just saw it pop up this morning, Justin, uh, but just to tie together some threads here, uh, I don't think it's any surprise. So right, Deval Patrick announces on Thursday you know, he's going to be spending a lot of time uh, in in uh, states and going after voters that are important to someone like Cory Booker, uh, who has been talking about bringing people together this whole campaign. But as I think we've discussed on this show, and as I've been saying for a while, one of the reasons why uh, the unity messaging from, uh, from candidates like Beto O'Rourke, uh, uh, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris hasn't picked up, in my view, is because they haven't taken any positions that are anything but from the left wing of the party. So so, so you, I think voters have a certain common sense sort of perspective. It, you can either run like Elizabeth Warren and say, you know, there are some real uh, enemies to folks' interests on in, you know, corporations or whatever, and we need to have a combative approach. And that's, that's fine. You know, then you don't have, you don't have to suggest that, you know, there are good ideas on on the other side. If you're going to run saying you're going to bring everyone together, be a president for all Americans, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you, you better have some ideas that are a challenge to your own party. For Barack Obama in 2008, Education was one of those areas. He was in some tension with teachers unions and he just he just that was an example to voters of him being willing to take on, you know, not insignificant interest within the Democratic Party to do what he thought was right. Well, Cory Booker is in The New York Times today with an op ed on charter schools. Finally, in my view, because he spent the early days of this primary running away from what was a, a hallmark of his early public career. I mean, anyone who knew Cory Booker prior to, you know, 2018 knew that he was someone who supported charter schools <laughs> like this. He's had legislation on it. He's done a gala events for charter school. I mean, I mean, it's been a huge part of his political makeup. Then he runs for president and all of a sudden it's, well, I don't know. These are different times. But finally, I think his campaign saw a, we can't run away from this. B, uh, we can't have Deval Patrick swooping in uh, last minute talking about challenging the other part, uh, challenging our own party, and we're going to be silent on something that's defined our candidates, you know, last decade in public life. And so, check out that op-ed. At charter schools, there's arguments for or against that. I'm, I'm not really making an endorsement of, of of Booker's position here, but. It is really interesting that we're we're that you know, a uh, ten weeks out from votes in Iowa, 
you have Cory Booker writing an op-ed where he's where he's saying that we can't sort of keep ideological boxes that filter out good ideas. Yeah, that's important. I mean, Booker, with, with all that's going on, sort of had to bust the move. I think this is a good move to, to make to say, hey, I do have some fortitude. I'm not like the rest of them that's just going to go along with everything that's being said in the moment. There are some things I disagree with, and I'm willing to stand up for that. And I think when I talk about a core, right. that's what I'm talking about, having a core to say, hey, even if it's not in the spirit of the day, this is right. And I'm going to stand on that uh, uh, regardless. So I, I appreciate that they did that. I wish these candidates would do it more often, but I agree with your assessment of that. All right. When we get back, we're going to talk about the election uh, over the weekend. Uh, this is the Church Politics Podcast. We're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And on Saturday, in a runoff election, Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards, a pro-life Democrat, won election against his Republican opponent, Eddie Respone, who was a wealthy businessman who had uh, been supported by President Trump. Trump visited Louisiana three times in just the last week or two to try and uh, lift up the Republicans' candidacy, but he fell 40,000 votes short. So in a state where Trump, I think, won in 2016 by 20 plus points, uh, a Democrat hasn't won, um, uh, a, pre- a presidential candidate hasn't won the state in a, in a very long time, though there is a relatively recent history of Democrats winning. Obviously, Governor Edwards uh, is the incumbent, but also Senator Mary Landrieu, uh, Governor Kathleen Blanco. Uh, But this was a significant win uh, for Democrats. I'll note that there was controversy uh, and a lot of rumbling within the party six months ago, a year ago, about whether the party should be supporting someone like Governor Edwards. Yes, they said. I, I guess it's. Oh, I guess it's pretty good that he expanded Medicaid when uh, a Republican in his position wouldn't have. I guess it's good that he's upheld the social safety net. That he's uh, made some moves on criminal justice reform. Uh, but he's pro-life. Can we can we really support someone who doesn't hold to party orthodoxy uh, on this issue, uh, even if the alternative is having a Republican office? Uh, Stacey Abrams at one point expressed some uh, expressed that she was upset with Edwards and and couldn't support him and wouldn't campaign for him. Abrams, like much of the rest of the Democratic Party, changed their tune to at least be at least be uh, uh, silent to not be actively speaking out against Edwards or trying to fundraise off, off of their courage to stand up against him. Uh, And so I was impressed by the party discipline that, that Democrats had, which is unusual for Democrats, at least in the months leading up to this election. And it's part of the reason why governor Edwards uh, won. He's the only democratic governor in the deep South, Justin. And uh, he is, uh, pro Second Amendment, so he's he's uh, uh, you know from my perspective, I, I disagree with. I wish he he was uh, a bit sh- stronger on, on gun control, but 
but I'm glad he I'm glad he won. Uh, Justin, what, what did you think of these these election results? Yeah. For those of you who don't know, uh, the state of Louisiana has the best Democrats in the country. Uh, not only is it the home state of Senator, I think she's now a senator, a state senator, Katrina Jackson, yeah. uh, who is awesome and who, you know, the Ann campaign loves. Uh, but also now we see it's the home of Governor John Bell Edwards, who, who I really like. Um, uh, as you said, he's pro-life, he's pro-poor, he's pro-health care uh, and very sensible just on social issues in general. And then the idea that um, other uh, well-known Democrats wouldn't support him is just really disappointing. Uh, and I haven't done this in a while, but I'm going to go ahead and give Governor John Bell Edwards our Church Folk Champ Award hey. uh, because I think he really is. He, he is somebody who represents someone who knows they have to govern, someone who who isn't afraid to, to, to be Christian and to be who they are, but really represents an estate and, and won an important election. And I, I just think it's important. I think if the pro-life movement... Uh, wanted to do itself, uh, do itself good, they would get behind folks like State Senator Katrina Jackson right. and Governor Bell Edwards to expand who's in the tent of the pro-life, you know, of that pro-life conversation. There's a reason that he won in Louisiana. And so I saw a lot, a lot of Democrats really excited. Of this Democrat won, not a lot digging into the fact that he was more moderate or traditional on a lot of the issues that Democrats usually run, run away from. So this, and many of you heard, have heard us talk about it, this really is what a Hamer Democrat is. And you see several Hamer Democrats in Louisiana. You should see more of them in, in places like Georgia. But these are Democrats who are, you know, can, can are, who are for poor, poor people, but who don't think they have to go all the way to the left when it comes to other progressive issues and, and social issues. So, you know, somebody like John Bell Edwards, I would say is probably 2008, uh, not a little earlier progressive. Uh, that's, that's my kind of progressive, but I think pay attention to, to this, uh, to this guy, pay attention to, uh, state Senator Katrina Jackson, because there are a lot of folks who aren't being spoken for, who are in the democratic party, some in the Republican party who fit this more Hamer Democrat model. Uh, and it's good to see somebody win and prove that that, that can be a winning model, uh, moving forward. Yeah. And, and like you said, just to reiterate, just they, they need support. Uh, and so, you, you know, I think one, one sad thing to see was this is, you know, governor Edwards is someone who signed in one of the most aggressive pro-life laws in the country. And yet the pro-life groups were silent in this election. Uh, uh, they, 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 didn't, they didn't put the kind of money behind him that they would if he was a Republican. Uh, but it, he accomplished more for them than almost any other, <laughs> any other governor uh, in the country. And so, you know, when we talk about uh, being able to go outside of partisan boundaries that's not just for the politicians uh that, that's for voters that's for advocacy groups being being willing to challenge uh, uh your party and your constituency and uh, justin as you said there are republicans that could probably uh, use some support uh when they're willing to challenge orthodoxy for the common good within their party and we should just keep an eye out for opportunities that we have uh to do that but yeah, very glad to see Governor Edwards win. Uh, if it, you know his candidacy is a, a striking message to 
uh, to folks that, you know, you can run candidates like Wendy Davis in Texas and get, raise a bunch of money, but they could get, they could lose um, be, because they're running on a message that is discordant with the people they're seeking to represent. Uh, or you could run a candidate that may not you know, tick every box in the Democratic Party platform, uh, but will be there for things like Medicaid expansion, will be there for things like criminal justice reform. Uh, and so uh, th- that's an important question for the party, especially as we head into uh, congressional elections and obviously the presidential. Justin, what are you thinking as we go into the week ahead? We have a, a really important presidential debate uh on, on Wednesday of this week that I think is going to be, um, I think, I think we're, we're going to see some fireworks given how Booty judge has risen in the polls. I think he'll, his team better be prepping to, to, to see some incoming. Uh, and obviously, you know, impeachment's going to continue and anything that you're looking out for this week. Yeah, so you know the the debates in Atlanta, and so oh, yeah. you, you, we're here in Atlanta, so that's good. You'll see some stuff coming from the AND campaign in that regard. So I'll be keeping my I'll be keeping an eye out on that. How are these? You know, so much has happened since the last debate. How was everyone going to react? And that's that's really be my main focus outside of getting these uh, exams done and hopefully finding some some healing and some health in, in the next couple oh, weeks. Man. Yeah, that, that's good. I am. Uh... Uh, I'll, I'll be looking for the debate. And then, as you know, uh, I'm, I'm heading to Italy on Thursday. So I'm, I'm looking forward to right. looking forward to that trip. I'll make sure to report back some highlights on the podcast. Uh, but I, I'm just trying to make it make it till Thursday, man. Uh, all right. Well, folks, thanks, as always, for listening. Uh, make sure to leave a review on uh, on iTunes. Make sure to check out the the Ann Campaign's 2020 statement at annecampaign.org slash 2020. And until you hear from us next time, have a blessed week. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Y'all take care. This is the groove. Tell me, can you handle it? I'm scolding the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a